welcome back to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. And I'm your host, Mike Allen. Well, today, you know, grave robbing is a despicable topic, horrifying and about as heinous as you can get. And yet, very respectable people did it in Connecticut in the 1800s. On this episode, we're going to learn about two cases that turned the tide, the outrage so strong that society began to treat it differently. In fact, riots broke out in New Haven. Those three cases were all in New Haven County, in the towns of Southford, Oxford, and in West Haven. John Dwyer is the town historian in Southbury, and he joins me for this episode to spell out the reasons why there was grave robbing and to explain what happened in these particular cases. Now, when grave robbing became illegal in Connecticut. Grave robbing doesn't really occur very much anymore in Connecticut. In 2019, there was a case where a couple of persons involved in what police described as a very sick religious cult dug up decades-old remains at a Jewish cemetery in Hartford and replaced them with two dead chickens. Back in 2016, Bridgeport police arrested a 40-year-old man named Felix Delgado during a drug raid. Well, they found skeletons in his basement and later determined that they had been dug up from a graveyard in Worcester, Massachusetts. Delgado told police that he was the high priest of Santeria. He allegedly dug up the graves of children and ground up their bones as part of a religious ritual. And in 1993, four teenagers in Killingly, Connecticut, were reported to have dug up the remains of a farmer from back in the 1800s. They told police they did it, well, because they were curious. The judge told them that as part of their punishment, they had to learn as much about the farmer as they possibly could and write a paper on him for the courts. Well, most grave robbing cases these days actually involve very old cemeteries where the thieves think they can retrieve antique valuables buried with the deceased. But, you know, back in the years in the early 1800s, there was quite a problem with grave robbing, and the thefts were occurring in New Haven County, from Southbury to New Haven. The very first first selectman of Southbury, Shadrock Osborne, and his son Erastus were actually heavily involved in these cases, and they helped bring about justice. I spoke recently with the town historian of Southbury, a gentleman named John Dwyer, who not only knows his story well, but has many facts that others do not, thanks to his wife, Lynn, who's the town clerk of Southbury. An incredible story indeed. We're talking now the year 1819, basically 200 years ago. It was January, and we're in Southbury, and they uh, are, are basically burying a guy named James Reynolds, who's 33 years old, and as they're burying him, they find that there's another grave that's been disturbed that's of a major tiff, and this is what started the whole thing going. What can you tell me about major tiff? What do they know about this grave? What happened next? One of the reasons that people were indignant and outraged was not only because it happened, but because of the person it happened to. It was Mr. Major Tiff. It wasn't a military title, but he was a veteran of the Revolutionary War. At the close of the war, he was impressed into the British Navy. Now, impressment was a practice that the British used. Uh, it's basically... Um, kidnapping, and then putting someone into forced servitude. So Mr. Tiff spent about 17 years in the British Navy against his will until his health failed 
and he was returned home after 17 years. He spent his remaining years being cared for by neighbors and friends, and the people felt bad for him. Not only did they feel bad for him, but they also considered him to be a patriot. Doubly bad when they found out he had been disinterred. Outraged, in fact. What really happened next was they um, called for a special meeting, which they proclaimed their outrage and decided to um, put out a reward. The reason we know this, um, my wife, who was the town clerk here in town, just happened to be going through the town journal and came across this uh, remarkable document, which was the minutes of that particular meeting. So I just have to read a couple passages from the meeting minutes from the 1800s. The offices of this town shall make every reasonable and proper exertion to detect and bring to justice those miscreants who perpetrated the above outrage upon the feelings of the living and the rights of the dead, and that we will not employ or give support to any physician or surgeon who we may ascertain to have been concerned, either directly or indirectly, in so nefarious a transaction. Pretty heady stuff. Let me uh, ask you, though, so the other wrinkle of this is that just about the same time, not obviously too far from Southbury in Oxford, uh, they found another uh, grave robbing. Just down the road, same day, same night that they figure it happened. And that's almost like a trail of crumbs heading toward one direction, (laughs) down toward New Haven. Now, there wasn't a law on the books that made this illegal at the time. It's not clear. It doesn't appear that there was. Um, Although they decided that they were going to uh, prosecute someone, it's not clear what laws they uh, used to do such things. But they did. They made attempts to. Now, Southbury has another unusual connection here. The judge, the Justice of the Peace, who was overseeing this case, kind of became a family affair when we get into part two, but let's start with the the Southbury part. So who was the Justice of the Peace? Tell me a little bit about him. Justice of the Peace was Shadrach Osborne. He probably served with Major Tiff. He probably knew him personally because he also was a patriot. So now the case comes before him somehow or other, and I couldn't see this in the record, maybe you have some information, but they tracked down this person and brought him in and and charged him, this guy Waldo. Yes. The tactic was to uh, issue a reward. Apparently that worked because um, shortly thereafter, this man, Joseph T. Waldo, was brought before Selectman Osborne. He pleaded not guilty. Bond was set at $200, and he was given a date to appear at the Superior Court in New Haven. And then he just jumped bail. He did appear later because he wanted his money back. And they said, you can't have your money back. (laughs) You didn't show up for court. That's why you post a bond. And he said, no, excuse me. The docket called for Joseph F. Waldo. My name is Joseph T. Waldo. You called for the wrong person, so therefore I didn't have to appear. Well, they didn't buy that as a very good excuse. So he turned around and he sued the state of Connecticut. And he won. Waldo versus Spencer in New Haven in 1821. The court was ruled to be in error. And they gave the judgment to Waldo. The curious thing I found in looking into this story, though, the modern mind thinks of uh, body snatchers and grave robbers. You think of people like Boris Karloff and Vincent Price and all that. But I had to wonder, looking at this story, what kind of person can get away unpunished with stealing more than one body and still turn around and sue the state of Connecticut and win? 
So I had to look in to see who this person Waldo was. Interestingly enough, he was at the time that this happened in his final year of medical school, about to graduate and become a doctor like his father before him. But the Waldo family was uh, quite an important, wealthy, privileged group in Connecticut, uh, large land owners, sons and daughters of pioneers and founders of New England. And surely they had connections in Hartford. And as a matter of fact, it's notable that Joseph T. Waldo's namesake was a, uh, a colonial governor named Joseph Talcott. He wasn't just a local kid who was out on a Friday night. Apparently had means, and that might be some understanding or explanation why he could do what I think was quite audacious. One of the lines in the documentation that your wife found that I found just amazing, it just opened my eyes, you know, we're talking today about constitutional rights and what do we have rights for and what we not have rights for. They talked about the rights of the dead. And I thought that was a very interesting way of, you know, looking at this. They talked about the feelings of the living, but the rights of the dead. And it's sort of like the the basis on which you would put forth legislation to say, we're not doing this anymore, we're not allowing this to be done anymore. Well, people who understood the concept of natural rights, which is what the Constitution is based on, might come up with that kind of thinking, that way of thinking. So this was 1819. And about five years later, uh, almost exactly five years later, there is another grave robbing, this time in West Haven. It's a young girl who's involved. Uh, and let's start off there. What, what actually happened in that case? Well, Shadrach Osborne's son, Erastus, had moved to New Haven, and he was named Constable. One day, he was called to West Haven to investigate what appeared to be another tampered grave where the body was missing. He might have had some insider experience with this uh, from his father's case with uh, Waldo. And uh, he was able to get a, a search warrant, and he went right to the medical school. <laughs> he brought a crew with him to search the medical school. Now, people caught wind of this, and a riotous crowd started to surround the school, if I have that right? Well, yes. He actually went into the basement and found the body buried under a, a freshly moved paving stone. They took the body out. They carried her in the wagon to bring her back to her family in uh, West Haven in Orange. Word got out. And uh, yes, a rioting mob formed with with, uh, weapons, with rocks, with guns, and with buckets of tar and feather. They wanted to do business. Now, three suspects were sort of identified, and two of them probably saw all this developing and said, we're out of here, and took off and left the third one there to fend for himself. Exactly right. Two of them went back to the protection of uh, their parents in neighboring states. One was eventually uh, tried uh, for this offense. So justice was done. Justice was done, but then again, it wasn't clear. They still, the historians who have gone through the records, uh, can't really figure out what the charges were. So you have to wonder, and, uh, um, and that was uh, 1824, uh, what kind of laws were there to prevent people from robbing graves? It's just unbelievable. They uh, then passed the Act to Prevent the Disinterment of the Bodies of Deceased Persons, which is a pretty clear title to the law. I think it's the objective is, is set out pretty clearly there. Part of the um, intent of the law was also to create an option 
for medical schools to get corpses for their dissection purposes and studying so that they wouldn't go and take people out of their neighborhood graveyards. Uh, one thing they did, executed prisoners were able to go to the medical schools and uh, convicts who passed away. They were also donated to the medical school. So once you, you provide a supply, there's less of a demand to go out and find them on your own. You say that at this point in time, there were outbreaks of riotous crowds around the country with people upset about this practice of dissecting uh, bodies and whatnot. Yes. Well, of course, at the time, maybe people weren't educated enough to recognize that there was a connection between disease and uh, having some understanding of uh, human anatomy in the body. And so they, were, they thought it was kind of gruesome that uh, medical uh, people would, would be doing that. Um, and so they were easily outraged. Uh, the first major um, anatomy riot or dissection riot was in, um, in New York City. There's 17 uh, within that 100-year period between 1760 and 1850 thereabouts all over the country. And New Haven was quite notable because it went on for most of a week. And uh, I guess students and faculty had to barricade themselves inside, uh, partly at the request of Constable Osborne, who said, you guys stay in here and don't go out on the street until uh, passions calm down. They had all they could do to get the uh, one suspect out and down to court to stand trial. Well, if you end up getting into grave digging, just be aware, Connecticut General Statute 53A218, interfering with a cemetery or burial ground, carries a penalty of 1 to 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. I guess we've learned it's simply easier to put a notification on your driver's license saying you want to be an organ donor or spell it out in your health care proxy. up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank John Dwyer, town historian of Southbury, for sharing all of his amazing stories in this episode. If you like the show, do two things. Follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you'll be notified when the next episode is coming. And tell your friends, your family, and your acquaintances. Also, I do presentations on the topics that I discuss here on Amazing Tales. And if you're interested in me doing an in-person show or a Zoom talk, just drop me a line at my email, amazingtalesct at gmail.com. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. (laughs) 